0: Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following is a Journey into Comics Network production. Suburbs of Chicago and Illinois. This is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Poor Report. This is episode 40. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention the last week, you got episode thirty-eight and thirty-nine. I don't know what you're thinking, like, why was there two episodes dropped? So the story was, I was working on a profile series for the, about the month before that, just releasing profiles on certain individuals, and it got to a point where I loved doing it, but there was so much news coming out that I wasn't talking about that it just it there was it was needed to really wrap that up and get going with uh, with the normal show. So I decided to wrap it up with a two-part episode. One. That was a back-to-basics, just doing the normal show, and then one completing the profile series by doing a episode on Nikola Tesla. So, that was a nice way to kind of wrap that up, and I'll probably revisit again, maybe during the slow season, maybe later in the summer, next year. I don't know how that's going to work out just yet, but I wanted to give you guys a chance to kind of see what I was bringing to the table, so... With that, I'm really going to jump into episode 40 for this week, a nice another milestone, getting really close to episode 50, which is exciting, and then we're getting kind of close to the one-year anniversary of the show, which is coming uh, in August, I think now? Time really flies, right? Um, So let's just jump right in. There were some news I found this week, and I thought I'd start out with what's going on in the court system. Um... This will be a little different than not the usual poor four because there's just so much news to catch up on, because when I recorded last week, a lot of news came out early in the week before the last episode dropped, or last episodes, rather. So, let's jump right in here. So, Teen, who started fire that burned 48,000 acres, ordered to pay 36 million dollars. So for one teenager, the consequence comes with a jarring price of $36 million. On Monday, an Oregon judge ordered the boy, who pled guilty to start in the Eagle Creek wildfire last year, to pay $36,618,330.24 in restitution to cover the damages. The teen said he had tossed fireworks in the woods while hiking on Eagle Creek Trail on September 2nd, 2, 2017. According to court documents obtained by CNN, one of those fireworks ignited the massive wildfire in Oregon, which burned more than 48,000 acres. The Vancouver, Washington youth, who was 15 at the time of the incident, appeared at a hearing on Thursday. He's not being named because he is a minor. The 11 claims from the state and other parties totaled $36 million, something the teen's attorney called absurd, according to CNN affiliate KOIN. The teen's attorney, Jack Morris, said the hefty fine violated the Oregon and U.S. Constitution citing the Eighth Amendment, which protects people from excessive fines and cruel and unusual punishment, according to the judge's written opinion. Hood River County Circuit Court Judge John A. Olson wrote in his opinion that the judgment doesn't violate the Constitution. The restitution is clearly proportionate to the offense because it does not exceed the financial damages caused by the youth. I'm satisfied that the restitution ordered in this case bears a sufficient relationship to the gravity of the offense for which the youth was uh, adjudicated? adjudicated? I'm not quite sure. CNN tried to contact Morris, the defense lawyer, on Monday, but he did not get called back. The order says the following organization of people should be receiving money. 5000 to Irish Sheck, $8,111.44 to Allstate Insurance, $31,550.90 to Oregon State Parks, $100,000 to Huker Properties, $168,000 to the Trail Club of Oregon, $1,048,877.52 to Union Pacific Railroad, one million six hundred forty-three thousand dollars to Oregon State Fire Marshal, twelve point five million to the Oregon Department of Transportation, twenty-one point one million to U.S. Forest Service. If the teen cannot pay the millions in full, the court has said he could establish a pay schedule through the Hood River Juvenile Department. In February, the teenager apologized in court and was sentenced to five years probation and one thousand nine hundred twenty dollars of community service with the U.S forest service reported uh cnn affiliate kptv wow that is a lot of money and really even about payment plan that kid that kid's great great grandchildren will still be paying whatever minimum they set because no one in their lifetime is going to have enough to cover that price tag and if you're they do it with injury, yeah you're just never gonna get out from under it i'm we're probably gonna work something out there's no way they're gonna actually hold this kid to pay him at 36 million i think it is an a. Kind of an egregious It is cruel Unusual punishment In my opinion Yes he did scro- Destroy Thousands and thousands Of acres And I think that kid Should Have wage garnishments to, As more of a Symbolic gesture And work Probably in that Area for the rest Of his life To help Clean up the damaged Plant trees Do the community service Thing I think he should Have 10 hours Of community service A week for the rest Of his life I'd not quite sure what, but $36 million is, no one, unless they win the lottery, is going to be able to pay that back in full or at any time to really help out the state of Oregon. So that's another thing. And then moving on to from one crazy court decision to another, a judge orders 30-year-old man to move out of his parents' house. His parents sent him numerous notices, asking him to move out, and even gave him money to find a new place. Two parents in New York will, th- will finally get to know what emptiness syndrome feels like. On Tuesday, this was uh, last Tuesday, uh, Michael Rotondo, 30, was ordered by State Supreme Court Justice Donald Greenwood to move out of his parents' house after leaving the rent free for eight years, the Syracuse post standard report. Christina and Mark Rotondo of Kamalis, near Syracuse, sent their son numerous eviction notices and even gave him $1,100 to help him find a new place. Despite being taken to court, Michael Rotundo still didn't get the hint. While in court, Rotundo refused to speak directly to his parents and argued with Greenwood for half an hour that he was entitled to an additional six months before eviction, saying a legal case he found on the internet that appears to back his claim. Greenwood reportedly praised Rotundo's legal argument, but sided with his parents and ordered him to move out, calling his demand for six more months outrageous. Rotundo fired back calling the judge's order outrageous, his plans to appeal the decision, according to ABC News. I'm not bothering them by living here, Rotundo said in an interview with Good Morning America on Wednesday. It's little to no cost to them, and considering how much they've harassed me, I think it's at least they they should be required to do, which is just let me hang here a little bit longer and use their hot water and electricity. In filings to the Supreme Court of New York State, Rotundo's parents sent him five written notices that date back to February, one of which asked him to remove his broken car from their property. Another note obtained by WSTM, the parents offered him $1,100 so you can find a place to stay and suggest that for money he could get a job or sell some of his belongings like his stereo and weapons. Weapons, wow. Uh, There are jobs available even for those with poor work history like you, the letter read. Get one, you have to work. So it sounds like they have a deadbeat child living in their basement who has no interest in leaving and is just... Eating their food, using their utilities, and then complaining when asked to be kicked out as a 30-year-old man. Yeah, go get a job, get an apartment, get a life. This is kind of ridiculous. For what no parents have to take their children to court to get them to move out. But at the same time, get the hint. I feel like if the parents have to go far just to write a written warning. You're just like a cockroach is rooted in their basement and not wanting to come out. So yeah... I have no sympathy for him. He, He's 30-year-old. He should be... You can get an apartment on a minimum wage job and do okay. Or get a roommate or get on Craigslist and find... Like, it's ridiculous. Just grow up. This is obnoxious. And from an obnoxious person to another, judge rules Trump can't block users on Twitter. As we all know, Trump is a big user of Twitter. That's his main contact with the world every day around between 5 and 6 a.m., you get a barrage of tweets regarding something going on in the world that day or just him congratulating someone, belittling someone else, and it's just the whole nature of things. So, a federal district court judge on Wednesday ruled that President Trump can't block people from viewing his Twitter feed over their political views. Judge Naomi Rice Buckwald of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York said President Trump's Twitter account is a public forum in blocking people who reply to his tweets with differing opinions constitutes viewpoint discrimination, which violates the First Amendment. The court's ruling is a major win for the Knight's First Amendment institution at Columbia University, which uh, brought the lawsuit on behalf of seven people who were blocked from the real Donald Trump's account because of opinions they expressed in reply tweets. Buckwald, who, who was appointed by former President Clinton, rejected Trump's argument that the First Amendment does not apply in this case and that the president's personal First Amendment interests supersede those of the plaintiff's. She suggested in her 75-page opinion that Trump could have ignored his opponent's reply tweets. No First Amendment harm arises when a government's challenged conduct is simply to ignore the speaker. As the Supreme Court has affirmed that it is free to do, she wrote, stated otherwise, a person's right to speak is not a fringe when government simply ignores that person while listening to others, or when the government amplifies the voice of one speaker over those of the others. Buchwald explain that blocking someone on Twitter goes further than just muting them. Muting preserves the muted account's ability to reply to a tweet sent by the muted account. Blocking precludes the blocked users from seeing or replying to the blocking users' tweets entirely, she said. In addition to Trump, a lawsuit named White House social media director and assistant to the president, Daniel Scavino. But Buckwell did not order Trump or Scavino to unblock the individual plaintiffs in this case or prohibit them from blocking others from the account based on their views as the plaintiffs had asked. She said a declaratory judgment should be sufficient. Because no government official is above the law and because all government officials are presumed to follow the law once the judiciary has said what the law is, we assume that that the president and screener will remedy the blocking we have held to be unconstitutional, Buckwald wrote. Jamil Jafar, director of the Knight First Women Institute, which the Nauts Foundation helped found, tweeted a screenshot of that line from Buckwald's opinion. John Gelser, executive director of Georgetown's Law Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, said the court's ruling is critical in... Is a critical victory in preserving free speech in the digital age. The court's third decision recognized the president's use of at real Donald Trump on Twitter makes it the type of public form in which the government may not, under the first amendment, silence its critics, he said in a statement. A department of justice spokeswoman said the agency respectfully disagrees with the court's decision and is considering the next steps. So, there you have it. In the same way that Trump's Twitter account can't be blocked for violating terms of service, which... Speaking of terms of service, I think everyone is sick of getting those emails and messages from everything you're subscribed to saying, we've updated our terms of service. I get it. Just move on. I think I've gotten 50 emails in the past week that have all said it. sick of it. But, so in the same way that Trump can't be blocked, he also can't block other people from disagreeing with him. And I still don't get why he uses at real Donald Trump as opposed to at POTUS, which is the president... Account, so I don't know. I feel like it's kind of ridiculous like the POTUS account. I don't think it has been touched in a year or more. So who knows what's gonna come of this? It sounds like they're gonna appeal it, which is just ridiculous. Just don't block people. Just ignore them. You shouldn't be on Twitter that much anyway. I don't. I just. I just don't get it. And moving from one hole the presidential initiative is digging to a hole that's actually forming outside. Of the White House itself is a sinkhole. So White House Sinkhole does not pose a risk, National Park Service says. Let this sink in. The President is safe from the White House sinkhole. The area on the North Lawn, which became a social media sensation this week, has been excavated and will be filled in or in over the coming days per the National Park Service. On Friday, May 25th, crews excavated an area around the small sinkhole on the north. White House grounds, we found an underground void about 6-8 inches in diameter, which was likely caused by a recent heavy rains that eroded the soil. Uh, Park Service spokeswoman Jenny Anselmo Sarla said in a statement Friday evening, In the coming days, we will plug the void with concrete, fill the excavated area with gravel and soil, and resod." The excavation confirmed the sinkhole, which did not grow larger since it was first noticed on May 20th, does not pose a risk to the White House. Except from the briefing room, workers dug a nearly waist-deep hole Friday afternoon The perimeter around the sinkhole, two traffic cones with some caution tape, was expanded to a larger enclosure with orange safety fencing. The sinkhole, which was first spotted last Saturday, is currently covered with plywood. Sinkholes are common occurrences following heavy rain, the Park Service noted. The geology of the White House naturally lent itself to sinkholes, said expert Terry West, professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences and Civil Engineering at Purdue University. Go Boilermakers. Uh, Most sinkholes, West told CNN, Formed from cavities and underground limestone, but the geology of the White House is really not that type at all. It's more of a sandy clay material that is remnant from when the oceans were at higher elevation. West suspects the sinkhole resulted from previous construction of the lawn. The particular stretch of grass has had its share of disruption over the years. During the Obama administration, the lawn was excavated and under construction for months. It would seem to be a sinkhole that would come about by an underground collapse of some sort, would be my best guess. It could be some construction debris that was not very highly compact and now began to settle and fill in with soil around it, but it looks like it would be more related to a main activities and to natural causes. It could also be the result of a leaky water pipe that caused erosion, West said. There's an in-ground irrigation system on the lawn to keep the grass green. Whatever the cause, the first family staff reported that they shouldn't worry about being swallowed up anytime soon. So, looks like... <coughs> So it looks like for the time being, uh, the sinkhole at the White House is a mute topic. And going from a sinkhole to the NFL, in the worst way to transition ever, the NFL released a new policy that requires on-field players' personnel to stand for the anthem, NFL owners have unanimously approved a new national anthem policy that requires players to stand if they are on the field during the performance, but gives them the option to remain in the locker room if they prefer it was announced Wednesday. The policy subjects uh, teams to a fine if a player or any other team personnel do not show respect for the anthem. That includes any attempt to sit or kneel, as dozens of players have done during the past two seasons to protest racial inequality and police brutality. Those teams also have the option to find any team personnel, including players, for the infraction. We want people to be respectful of the National Anthem Commissioner, Roger Goodell, said. We want people to stand, that's all personnel, and make sure they treat this moment in a respectful fashion. That's something we think we owe, but we are also very sensitive to give players choices. Goodell said that the vote was unanimous among owners, although San Francisco 49ers owner... Jed York said he abstained. Or abstained sorry. York said that all owners that voted in the process support the change. The policy will be part of the NFL's game operations manual and thus not subject to collective bargaining. The NFL Players Association said in the same. that it will review the policy and challenge any aspect that is inconsistent with the CBA. Some important details remain unclear in the hours after the policy's approval, including the specific fine that teams would subject to and how the league will define respect for the flag. To make a decision that strong, you would hope that they have that the players have input on it. Cleveland Browns quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, said, but obviously not, so we have to deal with it as players for good or a bad thing. I think the main thing out of all of it is that it, each ball club is having an open communication with players and ownership about the issues that are going on in the community and trying to change it. NFLPA executive director DeMaurice Smith reacted with displeasure in a series of tweets Wednesday. History has taught us... That both patriotism and protest are like water. If the force is strong enough, it cannot be suppressed. Today, the CEOs of the NFL created a rule that people who have autocracies should reject. Smith tweeted, Management has chosen to quash the same freedom of speech that that protects someone who wants to salute the flag in an effort to prevent someone who does not wish to do so. The sad irony of this rule is that anyone who wants to express their patriotism is subject to the whim of a person who calls himself an owner. I know that not all of the NFL CEOs are for this, and I know the true American Patriots are not cheering today. After spending months in discussion and three hours over two days at the league's spring meetings, owner said this found a compromise that will end sitting or kneeling with an aid to stop short of requiring every player to stand. The previous policy required players to be on the field for the anthem, but said only that they should stand. When then-San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick began kneeling in 2016, the league had no rule It could use to prevent it. The movement drew increasing criticism from President Donald Trump, as well as many fans who believed it was a sign of disrespect toward the flag and country. Owners, however, have been divided onto how to extricate the league from that criticism. Some owners, including the Dallas Cowboys' Jerry Jones and the Houston Texans' Bob McNair, wanted all players to stand. Others, such as the New York Jets' Christopher Johnson, wanted to avoid any appearance of muzzling players. Even the seemingly simple option of clearing the field prior to the anthem was rejected by some owners who thought it would be interpreted as a mass protest or at least a sign of disrespect. Earlier this week, the league finalized an $89 million social justice platform with players to help address some of the underlying issues that were under protest, said Mark Murphy, the Green Bay Packers president/slash CEO. I think we learned from each other in order to come to unanimous consensus, Murphy said. Let's talk about about our players. I think when you look at the last fall, it was difficult for all of us within the league, but one of the positives that came out of it was improved relationship with our players. In a statement accompanying the announcement, Goodell said the league wanted to eliminate criticism that suggests the protests were unpatriotic. It was unfortunate that the on-field protests created a false perception among many that thousands of NFL players were unpatriotic, Goodell said. This is not and never was the case. Kaepernick and former 49ers safety Eric Reed have both filed collusion cases against the league after failing to find jobs as free agents. Eagles defensive ed Chris Long tweeted that the policy is a fear of diminishing bottom line. Long, who is white, noticeably kept his hand on African-American teammate Malcolm Jenkins back for the entire playing of the anthem before a 2017 preseason game. Long then gave Jenkins a pat on the shoulder. passing and... Oh, uh, uh, Sorry. Long then gave Jenkins a pat on the shoulder pads and a hug when the song was over. It's also a fear of President turning his base against a corporation. This is not patriotism, don't get it confused, Long tweeted. These owners don't love America more than the players demonstrating and taking real action to improve. It also lets you, the fans, know where our league stands. Jenkins is one of a handful of outspoken players who vowed Wednesday to carry the cause. I'll not let it science me or stop me from fighting, he said. This has never been about taking a knee, raising a fist, or anyone's patriotism but doing what we can do to affect real change for real people. So there you have it. And I actually do have a copy of the policy statement, which I'll read for you right now. The 32-member club of the National Football League have reaffirmed their strong commitment to work alongside our players to strengthen our communities and advance social justice. The unique platform that we have created is unprecedented in its scope and will provide extraordinary resources in support of programs to promote positive social change in our communities. The Georgia also strongly believes that all teams and league personnel on the field shall stand and show respect for the flag and the anthem. The game operations may will be revised to remove the requirement that all players be on the field for the anthem. Personnel who choose not to stand for the anthem may stay in the locker room or in a similar location off the field until after the anthem has been performed. A club will be fined by the league if its personnel are on, are on the field and do not stand and show respect for the flag and the anthem. Each club may develop its own work rules consistent with the above principles regarding its personnel who do not stand and show respect for the flag and the anthem. The commissioner will impose appropriate discipline on league personnel who do not stand and show respect for the flag and anthem. So, this is kind of tricky. I know I covered the the little kneeling thing, the presidential protest of this, um, Pence unceremoniously leaving during... uh, I think it was Peyton Manning's honoring at the, I believe it was the Colts game. If I'm not mistaken, that was last fall, I believe. So it seems to be, instead of really tackling the issue, they're just trying to limit the issue. So basically, if you want to protest, if you don't want to stand for the anthem, stay in the locker room, out of sight, out of mind, and hopefully out of public attention. And if you do want to be out on the field and stand, then there you go. So it looks like, I don't know what the next... When we kick off the football season in the next couple of months, if that's going to involve a lot of people staying in the locker rooms, if it's going to involve everyone out there standing, if it's going to involve people still doing what they've been doing and kneeling, and then owners and people up in arms about whether to find them, remove them, all this sort of nonsense. I think kind of ridiculously to put this in black and white, because I feel like as Americans, we just have the right to. St- Sit, stand, kneel for the anthem. I personally stand for the anthem, but that's my choice. Really, don't have too much else to say about that, so I'll just kind of jump forward from NFL news to international news, and that involves the North Korean summit. So the Trump-Kim summit, the U.S.-North Korea summit, is it still on? U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un were planning to meet in Singapore on June 12th, and until just a few days ago, everything appeared to be on track. Then the summit was off. Then it was on, maybe. Will it still happen? Who knows, but this should get you up to speed for now. So how did we get here? Up until about two weeks ago, things seemed to be moving ahead as planned. The two sides had announced that the historic summit, a sitting U.S. president never met a North Korean leader, would take place June 12th in Singapore. The first sign something was amiss was on May 15th, when North Korea abruptly canceled a high-level meeting with the South Koreans. Pyongyang said, angry about joint military drills between the U.S. and South Korea. The rhetoric reached fever pitch Thursday when a high-level North Korean foreign ministry official called U.S. Vice President Mike Pence a political dummy for repeating a reference to the Libya model with respect to talks with North Korea. The Libya model refers to agreement Libyan leaders Muammar Gaddafi made to give up his nuclear weapons, only to be toppled by Washington-backed rebels years later. In the same bombastic statement, Pyongyang also threatened a nuclear showdown. U.S. officials said the personal attack on Pence and threat of nuclear war was the final straw. Trump canceled the summit Thursday in a letter to Kim, citing the hostile rhetoric, anger, and amid concerns over North Korea's commitment to give up its nuclear weapons. How did North and South Korea react to Trump's decision? South Korean President Moon Jae in, who was in Washington to talk North Korea with Trump last week, called an emergency meeting in the middle of the night once Trump canceled. Moon looked grim faced in a photo released to the public. He was quoted as saying he was perplexed by the decision. North Korea then surprised many by responding to Trump's bomb shall move without insult or bluster. The Friday statement from the top diplomat said Pyongyang regretted Washington's decision to nix the summit and said it was still willing to sit down with the United States. Trump seemed to take kindly to the overture, telling reporters that he thought the statement was very nice and that Washington would continue to talk to Pyongyang. He even hinted that the summit could still happen on June 12th. Everybody plays games, you know that, he told reporters when asked about ongoing talks. You know that better than anybody. Confused, so were the Koreans. Kim Jong-un, as appears, wasn't sure what to make of all this. Friday afternoon, Korean time, he reached out to Moon and said he wanted to meet in person. The two held their first summit together at the end of April. Moon agreed, and the two sat down together Saturday afternoon. A remarkably short amount of time to organize such a high-level meeting, and only the fourth time leaders of two Koreans or of the two Koreas have met face to face. The meeting was kept secret until it was done. Moon briefed reporters on the meeting with Kim Sunday, saying that both sides are still committed to moving forward. Trump said late Saturday in Washington, about the same time Moon was speaking to reporters Sunday in Seoul, that we're looking at June 12th in Singapore, that hasn't changed and it's moving along pretty well. A group of U.S. diplomats traveled to Pyongyang Sunday for preparatory talks, while a separate team of officials from Washington left for Singapore to plan logistics. So is the summit still on? Right now it appears so based on Trump's comment Saturday night, but that doesn't mean it's certain to happen, as the last few days have proven. After all, this is a president who has unapologetically thrown out the rule book when it comes to diplomacy. Nuclear negotiations with North Korea appear to be no exception. As the reality TV star turned president likes to say, we'll see what happens. So who's to say? And I know if you really want to make sure you get a copy or your own personal US North Korean Summit coin or US North Korean summit ornaments you need to go to the whitehouse.gov gift shop where they are available but even when it was off they were still for sale so if one thing the current mission cares about is good pr and good merchandising says the man who puts his name on everything he touches so that's it for the trump korea summit now it moves on to some more depressing news and that is the u.s lost track of 1475 immigrant children last year and here's why people are outraged now. Reporters of federal authorities losing track of nearly 1,500 immigrant children in their custody, scathing criticism over children being taken from their migrant parents at the border, proposed rallies uh, in the past week, outrage about treatment of children taken into U.S. custody at the southwest border, has reached a fever pitch, exploding a barrage of tweets and calls to action with the hashtags hashtag where are the children and #MissingChildren. children. How accurate are certain claims circulating online? What do these children have to do with the Trump administration's new immigration enforcement policies? How many families are being separated? And why is there so much outrage about it now? We took a look at how the story has snowballed. The United States really lose track of 1,475 immigrant kids. In short, yes. During a Senate committee hearing late last month, Stephen Wagner, an official with the Department of Health and Human Services, testified that the federal agency has lost track of 1,475 children who had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border on their own, that is, unaccompanied by adults, and subsequently were placed with adult sponsors in the United States. As the Associated Press reported, the number was based on a survey of more than 7,000 children. From October to December 2017, HHS called 7,635 children the agency had placed with sponsors, and found 6,075 of the children were still living with their sponsors, 28 had run away, 5 had been deported, and 52 were living with someone else. The rest were missing, and Stephen Wagner... Acting Assistant Secretary at HHS. Health and Human Services officials have argued it is not the department's legal responsibility to find those children after they are released from the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which falls under HHS's Administration for Children and Families. And some have pointed out that adult sponsors are sometimes relatives who already were living in the United States and who intentionally may not be responding to contact attempts by HHS. However, neither of the... Those arguments have done so much to quell outrage surrounding the testimony by Wagner, a principal deputy at HHS who oversees the administration for children and families. Senator Rob Portman, a Republican from Ohio, chairman of the Senate subcommittee, has repeatedly argued that it was a matter of humanity, not simple legal responsibility, citing a case which federal officials have turned over eight immigrant children to human traffickers. These kids, regardless of their immigration status, deserve to be treated properly, not abused or trafficked, Portman said in the subcommittee. This is... All about accountability. Portman reiterated his stance in an April 24th PBS Frontline special called Trafficked in America, which documented the plight of the eight children who were forced to work on an egg farm in Ohio. We've got these kids, they're here, they're living on our soil, he told PBS, and for us to just, you know, assume someone else is going to take care of them and throw them to the wolves, which is what HHS was doing, is flat out wrong. I don't care what you think about immigrat- immigration policy, it's wrong. In a written statement to the Washington Post, DHS stated that approximately 85% of sponsors who ultimately acquire custody of unaccompanied minors are parents or close family members. Were those 1,475 children separated from their parents at the border? No. The children unaccounted for in last year's HHS survey all arrived at the southwest border alone. The government refers to these children as unaccompanied alien children, or UACs. Are children taken from their parents after they cross the border into the United States? Yes, on May 7th, Attorney General Jeff Sentenson's... Jeff Sessions announced that the justice department would begin perse- prosecuting every person who crossed the southwest border legally, or at least attempt to prosecute 100%. Even if that even if some of them or sh- could or should be treated as asylum seekers as the American Civil Liberties Union has argued. Although Sessions has said he understood that some people were fleeing violence or their dangerous situations, he's also stated the United States cannot take everyone on this planet who is in a difficult situation. If you cross the border unlawfully, they will then we will prosecute you, he said in a pair of speeches in Scottsdale, Arizona and San Diego. If you smuggle an illegal alien across the border, then we'll prosecute you. If you're smuggling a child, then we're going to prosecute you and the child will be separated from you, probably as required by law. If you don't want your child separated, then don't bring them to the, cross the border legally. It's not our fault that somebody does that. The consequences of this new 100% policy is that children will be separated from their parents as the adults are charged with a crime. Even if the ad- adults are seeking asylum and present themselves as official ports of entry. Under federal rules, immigra- Immigration and Customs Enforcement transfers unaccompanied minors and now children of detained adults to Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement within 48 hours of their crossing the border. Are child-parent separations being used as a tool to deter border crossings? That would appear to be the case, as The Washington Post's Sarah Horowitz and Maria Sinchetti reported. Internal discussions about separating families at the border says that it was to dissuade people from attempting to cross the border. Senior immigration and border officials called for the increased prosecutions in April in a confidential memo to Homeland Security Secretary Kirstjen Nielsen. They said filing criminal charges against migrants, including parents, travelers with children, would be the most effective way to tamp down on illegal border crossings. The zero tolerance measure announced Monday could split up thousands of families because children are not allowed in criminal jails. Until now, most families apprehended crossing the border legally have been released to await civil deportation hearings. In a May 11th interview with NPR's John Burnett, White House Chief of Staff John F. Kelly referred to family separation as something that would be a tough deterrent to migrant parents who may be thinking of bringing their children to the border. Let me step back and tell you that the vast majority of the people that move illegally in the United States are not bad people, Kelly told Burnett. They're also n- not people that we want to assimilate into the United States into our modern society. They're overwhelmingly rural people in the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade education, kind of. The norm. They're coming here for a reason. I sympathize with the reason, but the laws are the laws, but a big name of the game is deterrence. What are some of the issues that children face during separations? For months, stories have abounded of families separated by immigration authorities at the border. Three children were separated from their mother as they fled a gang in El Salvador. A seven year old was taken from a Congolese mother who was seeking asylum, and so on. Reportedly, hundreds of cases, and almost every case, of the family had described heart wrenching goodbyes and agonizing uncertainty about whether they would be reunited. According to the Florence Project, an Arizona nonprofit organization that provides legal and social services to detained immigrants, there have been more than 200 cases of parents being separated from their children since the beginning of the year in this state alone. The type of devastation that we're talking about, where a separated mother doesn't know where her child is for four days, that's entirely common right now in this administration. Laura St. John, the group's legal director, told MSNBC's Chris Hayes, Children and parents who are separated sometimes don't have any way to communicate with each other for days for weeks. I've seen months where a parent had no idea where their child was after the US government took their child away. Saint John noted that her group also was seeing increasingly younger children being taken into custody by the Office of Refugee Resettlement as opposed to the migrant teenagers who had previously crossed the borders themselves. Just last week, we saw a 53-week-old infant in court without a parent. So A a little over a four-year-old? Wow. Uh, What we're seeing now is that because the government is separating the children from the parents, the government is actually rendering these children as unaccompanied minors and bringing them to the shelters. On the same program, Lee uh, Gellernt, deputy director of ACLU's Immigrants Rights Project, told Hayes the number of separations his group has seen was unprecedented. This is the worst thing I've seen in 25-plus years of doing this civil rights work. I'm talking to the mothers, and they're describing the kids screaming, Mommy, Mommy, don't let them take me away. The medical evidence is overwhelming that we may be doing permanent trauma to these kids, and yet the government is finding every way they can to try and justify it. The Office of Refugee Settlement reported that children spent an average of 34 days in their custody during the 2015 fiscal year. What has the government's response been? In his May 11th NPR interview, the White House Chief of Staff danced around a question about whether it was cruel and heartless for U.S. border officials to take an immigrant child away from his or her mother. I wouldn't put it quite that way, Kelly told Burnett. The children will be taken care of, put into foster care, or whatever. But the big point is they elected to come illegally into the United States, and this is the technique that no one hopes will be used extensively or for very long. Many members of Congress expressed concern about family separations. In February 7th, oh, sorry, in February, 71 Democratic lawmakers signed a letter to Nielsen saying that they were deeply disturbed by the increasing practice, which suggests a lack of understanding about the violence many families are fleeing in their home countries. On May 16th, Senator Kamala D. Harris, a Democrat from California, questioned Nielsen about the immoral policy and asked whether she had been directed to separate families to deter future border crossing attempts. Nielsen denied that the new policy will was an act of deterrence. What purposes have you been given for separating parents from their children? Harris asked. So my decision has been that anyone who breaks the law will be prosecuted, Nielsen said. If you're a parent and you're a single person or you happen to have a family, if you cross between the ports of entry, we'll refer you to prosecution. You've broken U.S. law. Nielsen also tried to recast questions that characterize children being removed from their parents' custody as family separations. When Harris demanded to no know whether or how border patroliers were trying to take children from their parents, uh, Nielsen interrupted. No, that we'll be doing is prosecuting parents who have broken the law just as we do every day in the United States of America, she said. I can appreciate that, Harris continued, but if the parent has a four-year-old child, what do you plan on doing with that child? The child under law goes to HHS for care and custody, Nielsen said. They'll be separated from their parents, Harris said slowly. My question then is, what? when you are separating children from their parents, do you have a protocol in place about how they should be done? And are you training the people who will actually remove a child from their parent on how to do it that is... The, uh, do that in a last traumatic way, less traumatic way. I would hope you to train on how to do that. Deals said she would provide the information to Harris later. Well, the hearing took place two weeks ago. Harris tweeted footage from it on Saturday after calling Nielsen's response beyond is insufficient. Why are we hearing about these issues now? As mentioned, reports of the 1,000 of our children, HHS, could not account for first emerge in April, and proposals to crack down on migrant families crossing the border were discussed as early as last year. Nevertheless, the story snowballed this past week with thousands expressing outrage online about both family separations or the HHS survey from last year. Why, as with other topics that mushroom inexplicably on social media, it's unclear. The issue may have drawn renewed attention in part because of a widely shared column in USA Today by Arizona Republic columnist E.J. Montini. Friday also happened to be International Missing Children's Day, producing what some call an ill-timed tweet from the recruiting arm of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Although ICE is not the agency that is responsible for migrant children, it has since President Trump took office cracked on deporting undocumented immigrants who previously would not have been a priority. MSNBC's Hayes highlighted the issue on his show on Friday and called out egregious cases of family separation on social media, labeling the practice as a moral abomination and a national shame. As mentioned before, the 1,425 children were not separated from their parents at the border. However, many who have expressed outrage online about family separations have been Appending their tweets with the hashtag "Where where are the children and missing children, intentionally or unintentionally linking the two issues. Some who have been better informed also conflated the two, implying that federal officials have lost 500 immigrant children who have been taken from their parents when this was not the case. Other officials and celebrities seized on the hashtag proposed protests and spread the country further. However, as Vox Immigration Reports' Dara Lind. Went out in a long thread about both matters. The fact that HHS already admitted that it cannot account for nearly 1,500 migrant children previously in its custody does not inspire confidence that the agency could perform better with an expanded scope of responsibilities. Is this relevant to their newly expanded duties to care for child, kids separated from their parents? You bet it is, Lind wrote. But that's because it's the agency's failing at its traditional function and now being asked to perform a new one. The topic gained traction Saturday morning when Trump tried to blame Democrats for the horrible law that separates children from parents once they cross the border even though there was no such law, and even though it was a policy supported by his administration. Trump also tried to use the issue to drum up support for his proposed border wall. Uh, in a tweet, said Trump said, Put pressure on the Democrats to end this horrible law that separates children from their parents once they cross the border into the U.S. cash and release. Lottery and chain must also go with it, and we must continue building the wall. Democrats are protecting MS-13 thugs. He used uh, DACA kids as a bargaining chip, and it didn't work, said Kevin Appleby, the senior Director of International Migration Policy at the Center for Migration Studies, a nonpartisan think tank. Whew, that's a mouthful. So now he's using the vulnerable Central American families for his nativist agenda. It's shameless. So there you have it. Another week in news on the Poor Report with just a ton going on involving Trump, the US, foreign relationships, kids being separated from families kids disappearing after being settled with new families or host families. So I'll definitely be keeping up with the story and kind of see where it takes from here. But hopefully those 14 or 1,475 kids are safe wherever they are. And really there's no other way to really end this show. So just keep out there finding information, looking into news, not settling for one side of the story and just continue to live your life the best way you can. Uh, that's the poor poor for this week. I'm Andrew Poor and I want to thank you all for listening. Have a great week.